Good morning, everyone. It is amazing that we have God's word in our own languages, not just Hebrew. We are here because Faith Church and Iglesia de Fe are expression of God's love for the nations. So we are going to read Psalm 145, verse 3 to 9, in both Spanish and English. Here is God's word. Grande es Jehová, y digno de suprema alabanza, y su grandeza es inescrutable. Every day I will bless you, and praise your name forever and ever. En la hermosura de la gloria de tu magnificencia, y en tus hechos maravillosos, meditaré. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Proclamarán la memoria de tu inmensa bondad, y cantarán tu justicia. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. Bueno es Jehová para con todos, y sus misericordias sobre todas sus obras. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Palabra de Dios. They shall speak the might of your awesome deeds, and I shall, will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the frame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he made. This is the word of God. Noah and Laura Martinez, thank you so much for reading God's word for us this morning. Last Sunday, most of you were right here and heard Pastor Joey tell us that God is good, that uh, God in his essence, uh, the essential goodness of God, the goodness which is intrinsic to who God is, and because God is good, God does what is good. His actions are good. Now, I also know that Joey believes that God is sovereign and personal, that he's not an absentee landlord, but he's ever-present and involved in our lives. Everything in your life and mine, he is aware of and involved in. So, we heard this great sermon last Sunday on the goodness of God, And then after church, we began to get news feeds on our phones, and if you turned on the television at home, you'd realize the news was filled with this horrible situation in Sutherland Springs, Texas, where a lone gunman entered First Baptist Church last Sunday morning during their corporate service, began shooting. His intention was to kill every man, woman, and child in the room. Reports came that more than 50 people were dead. That was changed to 26 dead and 20 injured. An 86-year-old widowed grandfather, 86-year-old Joe Holcomb, was not there that morning, but nine of his family members were killed. His son Brian was the guest preacher that day along with his wife, Carla, their son and daughter-in-law, Mark and Crystal, and their four grandchildren, Noah, Emily, Megan, and Greg. Oh, not, not four kids, but five, one of them still in the womb, all of them murdered. And some would ask, where was God? Why didn't God stop Devin Kelly from 
bringing such suffering to Sutherland Springs? How, how does this event that happened last Sunday support the thesis that God is good? Well, it's been one of the stumbling blocks for millennia, back to many accounts in the Bible, including the book of Job, and from the Bible times on up to the present time, in our past, in the past century, the Holocaust, most dramatic example, but not the largest one, massive numbers of lives lost in Ukraine, in China, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, in Rwanda, Burundi, in the Congo. It's a reality in this world that atrocities like this occur. And more recently in the United States, going back to 1999 with Columbine High School and then Virginia Tech University and Fort Hood and Sandy Hook, San Bernardino, Orlando, Las Vegas, and now Sutherland Springs. And we just wonder what will be the next city that goes on that list. But this relates to more than mass killings. It's very personal for us, the reality of suffering in this world. I called my friend Carolyn on Thursday evening, the third anniversary of her husband's death after suffering from liver cancer. My best friend Jim. How does the goodness of God relate to his premature death, it seems, at age 62? Or just a year later, my brother Wes, two years ago, less than a month after diagnosis with pancreatic, pancreatic cancer at the age of 61. Or my mom from ovarian cancer at age 66, so that my children never really got to know their grandmother. Then you say, well, all of your examples are people at least made 60. That's not so bad, is it? Well, unless it's you that's affected. What about Linda's father who died at age 39 when she was 15? A huge loss for a teenage girl and her older brother and 10-year-old sister. What about the one-year-old baby? The little boy at six who died of leukemia. The 17-year-old in a car accident. The mother of three very young children who died of lymphoma. I know the names of those people. I did their funerals. How do you explain that? And each of you have your personal list, probably in your own immediate family, if not within a very close circle of acquaintance. The very existence of suffering and death whether illness, accident, disability, chronic pain, victims of crime, natural disasters, war, victims of horrendous abuse, all of these things raise the question, is God good? We learn as little children, at least some of you did, I don't think my parents taught me this prayer, that we learn God is great and God is good. This text clearly says God is great and God is good. Do we believe that? If that's true that God is great, that he's sovereign and powerful, able to prevent suffering and death, and that God is good, then why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he prevent suffering and death? How, how is God good? 
I hope by the end of this sermon you will have the essential answer, is God good? And be able to say, yes, God is good. I promise you, though, you will not have all the answers to the problem of suffering. Job didn't get the answers to all the problems of suffering. Don't think you're going to either. But I hope you will be able to go home today saying, oh, yes, God is good. And that you can know the goodness of God very personally. Psalm 145 is our passage for this entire month of November. It's the last of 73 psalms attributed to David. It's the only psalm of praise that has the word, it's the only psalm in the Psalter that has the word praise in the heading, in the title. This is a psalm of praise of David. It's the last of eight acrostic psalms. It's been called the alphabet of praise, or in the case of Psalm 119, uh, in which every verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, or in the case of Psalm 119, every stanza starts with a Hebrew uh, letter, a successive letter, a reflection of the poetic creativity of the psalmists. And Psalm 145 focuses on the goodness of God. Uh, Joe emphasized that goodness is essential or intrinsic to God's being and character. And today we're going to take it just a step further, considering God's goodness in action, what God does, His works in the world. God's actions toward us First are those of a loving father. All that is stated in the Old Testament is summarized in James 1.17 regarding the goodness of God. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father who is good. And he gets that from all over Scripture, but he certainly could take it from right here. Verses 4 to 9 extend the argument that goodness is intrinsic to God, evident in his actions, in all that God does. Look at the Bible. Verse 4, your works, your mighty acts. Verse 5, the glorious splendor of your majesty, your wondrous works. Verse 6, your awesome deeds, your greatness. Verse 7, your abundant goodness, your righteousness. So what does this tell us about God? He is great. He is mighty. He is majestic. He is awesome. He is good. He is righteous. Most of you know that uh, I get asked this question all the time, what are you doing with your easy life now that you only work half the time? And uh, many of you know that I've uh, rounded out my semi-retired half-time position with the church. I've rounded out my schedule uh, more than a little bit by um, becoming uh, the principal of a uh, one-student school. Uh, for my grandson, the principal, tutor, and teacher, though I have lots and lots of help. But I'm also auditing and serving as teacher's aide for a wonderful British literature class in our homeschool cooperative. And we've worked through some Old English and Middle English works, and uh, we've moved into the Elizabethan age and into the Restoration age. And our current assignment to be read, and I'm doing all the reading, I really am a student in this class, I just don't take the tests, but I, I really am reading all this material. Our current assignment to be read by the Monday after Thanksgiving is to read all of Gulliver's Travels. How many of you have read Gulliver's Travels? Okay, a few of you, not too many. 
Now, I knew about Gulliver's travels. I knew that Gulliver traveled to Lilliput. And I knew that he woke up on the beach with his body, every part of his body being tied down so that he couldn't move with hundreds of ropes, very small ones, but you get enough and they'll work. And uh, he had uh, the people that were so small that they had to put ladders up against his body to climb up on him to investigate this monster that has landed in their country. I knew all of that because I saw the picture somewhere. I now know that Gulliver was so big. No, it wasn't because he was so big. It was because the Lilliputians were so small that he could hold several of them in the palm of his hand. And it's not like they were that close to the edge so they might fall off. No. They fit very comfortably in the palm of his hand. That's how small they were, or how big he was, depending on your perspective. Now, I got through the voyage to Lilliput, and I was not at all familiar, though, with his second journey, where he was separated from his shipmates and and left stranded in Brobdingnag. I had to practice that word several times before I dared speak it out loud. Brobdingnag, where he was as the Lilliputians to these giants who could hold him in the palm of their hand. It's an amazing story. In one place he's the giant, though he didn't change his size. He has now become the miniature, I said Lego man, but probably smaller than the Lego man. So that a normal house cat was just, I mean, this massive thing to him. A mouse. Uh, birds, terrifyingly large. And insects in Brobdingnag, like mosquitoes, were just, I mean, you think you're scared of mosquitoes. These were terrifyingly large. And he learned something about greatness and smallness in size, perhaps a, a hint of our smallness in contrast to the greatness of God who The Bible uses that analogy, doesn't it? It holds us in the palm of his hand. It's a beautiful thing. If God is good, if God has our best interests in mind. But other than size, Gulliver was of minimal difference from his hosts in Lilliput or Brobdingnag. All fallen people with the same problems of the English, which were many. That though bigger than the Lilliputians, he was not better than them. And even though uh, virtually Adam-sized in, in comparison to the Brobdingnags, he was not morally inferior to them. And, and so God's greatness is illustrated by, by Gulliver only for, for, for very, imp, very imperfectly in just one aspect that we might say the, the least important issue in terms of differences, that of size. And when you speak of the size of God, who's massively, eternally large, and yet he's spirit. So even that is metaphorical for our limited understanding. The psalmist describes God as great, not in typical dimensions that we use, but in righteousness, in majesty, admits right up front in verse 3 that he cannot go very far in his description of God whose, whose greatness 
is unsearchable, beyond our finding out. But what he can point out and does emphasize is that all of God's actions, look at the key words in verses 6, his works, his acts, his works, his deeds. What does it say next? They, that is God's actions, they shall pour forth the fame of your God's abundant goodness. So it's not like goodness is just one of a list. It's that all of these other things are reflections of Actions of God's goodness. What God does, what he's already done, what he continues to do is a testimony to his goodness. Now, what are we talking about here in terms of God's actions? In the Bible, the actions of God can be identified in a few categories. I am not pretending that this is a complete list of those categories. But there are three that really stand out, found over and over again through the Bible. Number one, the work of God in creation and providential care. That's a big one. Number two, the work of God in righteous judgment. That's another big one. And number three, the work of God in salvation or redemption or rescue. That's going to be our focus. The focus of Psalm 145 is this third category, your works, your mighty acts, your awesome deeds, your abundant goodness, goodness references God's work in salvation, God's rescue, which, again, I argue, is the theme of Scripture. The example, prime example, rescuing Israel from Egypt out of slavery. The unquestionable link to that, if you question it, is verse 8, which is a direct quote from Exodus 34. And so Derek Kidner, an excellent English scholar who's commented on this, all the matters for praise in this stanza are God's saving interventions. That's the central theme, the storyline of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God's saving action, bringing us Back to Genesis 1 and 2, the perfections of Eden, in Revelation 21 and 22, but even better. Sinners deserve divine judgment. We're cast out of Eden and our forebears, Adam and Eve. We struggle and sweat and curse God and die. We are lost. But God called Abraham out of a completely pagan family, called him to follow him, taught him the way of faith, taught him that salvation involves a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice for the sinner, introduces him to this plan. Then we go to the Exodus with Moses. The death of the Passover lamb is the symbol or the picture of this substitute sacrifice for sinners that brought release from slavery for Israel from Egypt. And that's the central story of the Old Testament told over and over again, Enforced, reinforced by the prophets who point ahead to the one who's to come, that this is a picture of something else much greater that is the coming of Jesus. It's the story of God's goodness to rescue a lost people, God's work in salvation. Now, as we're introduced to God's goodness, and think about God's goodness, what should be our response? Well, Psalm 145 instructs us to respond to God's actions of goodness in four ways. So let's look at each of these briefly, our response to God's goodness. Number one, we're to communicate God's goodness. Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So we are to tell others of the actions of God. 
No more important parental function to tell the story of what God has done, God's works. Psalm 71, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. God, O God, from my youth you've taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Communicating this is extremely important. Psalm 78, 4 to 7, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he's done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The most important function in the family is to communicate the works of God to the children. Nothing is more important than that. It's not enough to teach your children to be kind and loving and respectful and how to get along in the world, that's all important. But to teach them the acts of God, the salvation history of the Bible is even more so. And don't just tell them that God loves you and Jesus died for you. You want to get there, but don't start there. You want to start with a history of salvation. You want to go to Genesis. You want to tell them about Adam and Eve. And there's so much of this you can include at a very, very young age. And I don't think you should hesitate to talk to them about things they can't understand even before they can understand. Just make it part of your life. Uh, Read them the story of Adam and Eve and uh, their fall into sin and having to leave the garden and Cain's murder of Abel and Noah and the flood and why this happened because of sin and because God is righteous And then God's rescue of Noah, that God is good and God loves and God rescues. Tell them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the good and the bad, Joseph and his brothers, the story of Moses and the deliverance of Egypt, the the main story of the Old Testament. God's presence with these rebels in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they come to the promised land, and Joshua, and Deborah, and Gideon, and Samson, and Samuel, and Saul, and David. I mean, these are wonderful stories that really will catch your imagination and hold you. Share them with the kids. Elijah, Elisha, all the kings of Israel and Judah, help them see the cycles of sin and redemption, the failure ultimately of the law. Make sure we're not teaching them, be good and God will accept you. Don't teach them that. That's a lie. Teach them about the cycles of sin and rebellion and how that relates to our own sin and rebellion. And that it's not being good enough to please God so that we can go to heaven. It's acknowledging that we are sinners and we can't please God. That we need a sacrifice, that we need a Savior bigger than ourselves. You see, we're responsible to transmit salvation history from one generation to another. And yes, the church can help, but the primary responsibility, and so many of us have have failed in great measure But wherever you are, pick yourself up and start again. Start now. Make sure that you don't leave this to the church to do for you on Sunday morning in Sunday school class. That will be a tremendous encouragement and help, but it will not do it. You as parents and now as grandparents need to do it. Even though we've not done so well in the past, we need to step up. 
communicate the stories of God's goodness. Number two, we're called to meditate on God's goodness. Verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. What's that mean? It means to think, to mull over, to constantly talk to yourself about this. Psalm 119.27, I will meditate on your wondrous works. Psalm 143.5, I meditate on all you've done. I ponder the work of your hands. There are two key Hebrew words that can be translated meditate with a broad range of meaning. To think, uh, to complain, to murmur, to brood, to muse. There's a bad kind of meditation that we all do. By the way, I don't have to tell you to meditate. You are meditating all the time. There's never a waking moment that you are not meditating on something. It's the focus of what you're meditating on that makes the difference. And you can meditate on all kinds of things that will just lead to bitterness and anger, to which God says, let all bitterness and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Or there's a good kind of meditation in which you can meditate and mull over and savor and think and reflect about God and His goodness in His actions, and that will bring forth the fruit of righteousness. That's in great sense uh, what the Lord's Supper is about, to remember and reflect the greatest act of God's goodness in the cross of Jesus, to meditate on what God has done for us in Christ. That's the ultimate thing. His good works that makes possible our salvation. Not our good works, but His good works that are ours as a gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Number three, we're called to educate about God's goodness. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. He goes back and forth between they and I. I won't take time to develop that, but I just notice it. Now, this is probably just number one all over again. Um, Hebrew parallelism, which is all over the Psalms. Uh, We're called to communicate God's goodness Uh, We're called to educate about God's goodness, put them together, and it's really just the combination of what preaching is to be, that we proclaim, that we declare, hear ye, hear ye, I have an announcement to make, that's part of preaching, and the other part of preaching is is look at this verse and, and see this word and see what, and it's teaching, it's explaining, it's proclaiming and explaining the goodness of God. Number four, we're to celebrate God's goodness. Verse seven, they shall speak forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So that's what we come together for, all of this. But to celebrate, to put our celebration of God's goodness in song, that's part of the meditation. I mean, when we sing, we're meditating on these great truths. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the singing is part of the teaching. And the preaching is part of the celebrating. It all fits together. So communicate God's goodness, meditate on God's goodness, educate about God's goodness, celebrate God's goodness. But what is the essence of God's goodness? This is where we've got to go. The answer's in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love. Where have you heard that before? Well, the last time you read Exodus. I hope it hasn't been too long ago. Exodus 34, verse 6, direct quotes. But let's consider context. God delivered Israel from Egypt. They saw God's goodness over and over again, crossing the Red Sea. Bitter waters made sweet. Manna and quail given in abundance. Water from the rock. Deliverance from their enemies, the Amalekites. Is, is, uh, they had victory as Moses' hands were held up. Uh, victory over their enemies. God meets them at Mount Sinai and speaks to them there, giving the Ten Commandments. His goodness just poured out, just flowing over them day after day, year after year. But what did they do? Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. And while they're gone, they think he's never coming back. They give up on Moses and they decide to build a golden calf. To pour a golden calf. And they get this golden calf all finished and they bow down and they worship and they stand up and they sing and they dance and they proclaim this golden calf to be their deliverer and their God. And Moses is just devastated. God is so good and merciful and kind and then they do this and he comes back and and he pleads with God to forgive them. But then Moses kind of goes internal in himself for a while. I mean, he, he's, he's gone through a lot, and so he's, he's kind of forgetting about the people for a while, and he's just thinking about himself and his relationship with God and, 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 and how he can really know God in a personal way. And he pleads with God, show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. God says, I can't show you my glory without it killing you. I give you the whole, the whole view, and you're going to die. You'll fry in a moment. I show you all my glory, but, but Moses continues to cry out to have God revealed to him, and, and, and God says, and I won't go into all the details, but God says, I, I will show you. I will reveal myself to you, and this is the answer to that request, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's the glory of God revealed in great measure. The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Any kind of sin. Some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's for people who haven't sinned as much as I have. No, it's for you too. There's no category of sin that is exempt from this in terms of God's care for you and his mercy for you and forgiveness. So God's glory it was revealed to Moses was the glory of his goodness, his love. So that David the psalmist quotes from that passage and adds this summary statement in verse 9. The Lord is good to all in his mercy is over all that he has made. Look, look to verse 13. Look ahead to verse 13. It's not part of our text, but it just became part of our text. Remember I told you at the start that this is an acrostic psalm, each verse starting with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet? Well, there's a problem with that because the Hebrew alphabet, if you didn't know, has 22 letters. How many verses are here? Only 21. So we've got a problem. And in fact, in many copies of the Hebrew text, the 14th letter was missing. It's the Hebrew noon. 
N-U-N, or the N sound. But it was passed down. It's not found in the Masoretic text, the, the main Hebrew text that we, that we go back to. But it was found, uh, uh, this, the, the noon, the, the missing letter, was found in an extra uh, verse that was uh, in many of the translations, and it was discovered in Hebrew in the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have it here, and actually the numbers, you know, aren't inspired in the Bible. If you didn't know that, you know, the verse numbers, the verse divisions, those aren't inspired. That's not part of the original. They were added later, and they're helpful. They make it a lot easier to find our way around. But really, the second half of verse 13 ought to be verse 14, and then you extend it on out, and you have all 22 letters in in 22 verses. But here's what it says. Verse 13b in our translations, the Lord, this is the 14th letter, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. God is good. Now let's circle back around to where we started today. How do we see the goodness of God in the face of suffering? with the great suffering we encounter, such as happened last Sunday in Sutherland Springs, and that all of us meet throughout life, and who knows what will happen this week or this year or next year that will be another example for us. It fits this way. Psalm 145 does not claim that God's goodness means we are exempt from suffering. In fact, there are some passages within the psalm that assume suffering that it's part of life. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling. Somebody who's been slammed with something so that they're falling, the Lord upholds. He doesn't prevent the fall from from the, the problem from beginning in the first place. That's verse 14. Verse 20, the Lord preserves. Oh, there's something that needs something's bad happening here that needs preserving. The Lord preserves all who love him. Now, just as in our study of Job, we don't know the answers for each specific situation. Uh, Job didn't get the answers. He basically was told in the end, I'm God, you're not, and you've got to trust me. And in great measure, that's what we have to do, and yet God gives us so much more. It's not like he's off-putting and, and doesn't give us something to hang on to. He does. Because he's revealed himself that he is God. We know that this God who's revealed himself to us is good. We know that all that God does is good. We know that when he sends the rain to bless us, when he brings judgment on the wicked, when he disciplines the saints, when he allows inexplicable suffering to come into our lives that we don't understand, God is good. We know that God is sovereign and personal. We know that he's, he wasn't asleep or absent last Sunday when Devin Kelly did what he did. And so we know a lot, but there's a lot we don't know. We don't understand the mystery of God's sovereignty that's beyond us. And by the way, this is not the time for me to go to Sutherland Springs and offer to preach this message in their church. I guess they're just going to tear that building down. I don't know what they're going to do. This is not the time to go down there and preach this message to those people. 
This is the time for those who know them to just go there and to hold them and love them and be with them, not preach at them. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes, this was life-changing for me. For everything, there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. And you need discernment. You need to pay attention. You need to look for the clues. So you know when you do this and when you do this. And in the raw pain and numbness of great loss, it's probably when you arrive at the hospital To be with somebody who's been hurt or just lost a loved one, that's not the time to give this message. That's the time to to be present and embrace. I would not show up at Joel Holcomb's doorstep the next day and preach this sermon. I'd just try to be with him and try to discern from his need and, 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 and support in any way I could. And if he asked questions, I'd, I'd try to answer them as best as I could, but I, I wouldn't give an extended narration of the biblical text. I'd pay attention to his hurt, his emotions, his pain. But let me tell you something about Joe Holcomb. Remember, he's 86 years old. He's lost his whole family. Before last Sunday happened to him, Joe Holcomb was taught He was given a foundation. And and we prepare ourselves and our loved ones the same way by consistently proclaiming God's goodness, meditating on God's goodness, goodness, educating about God's goodness, celebrating God's goodness, which provides the foundation for the crisis when it hits and the emotional, mental, spiritual challenges that we face it prepares us in advance and gives us a foundation for standing in the midst of the crisis. And that's what Joe Holcomb had in reserve, deep reserve, as he faced the horror of his family being wiped out, three generations younger than him all gone, because he had a reservoir of understanding and personal embrace of the goodness of God in his life. And that's how He could say, and I quote, in his strained, grief-stricken voice, he could say, very simply, we know where they are now. All of our family members, they're all Christians, and it won't be long until we're with them. He's 86, so he's probably, probably right, even in our sense of time. The mystery of suffering as well, it's a mystery, but consider this as we close. If God prevented every act of violence and stopped all cancer and heart disease and birth defects and premature death and abuse, but didn't rescue us from the eternal penalty of sin and rebellion against God, all the temporary rescue of this world would be a mockery and would not reflect the goodness of God. Last Monday morning, the day after the Southern Springs Massacre, I opened my Bible to John 11, my reading for the day, and uh, 
Jesus hears about the illness of Lazarus. Remember the account? Hears about the illness of Lazarus. He's away. He's not there. And and he says to the disciples, this this illness will not end in death. And and he doesn't go back. The sisters want him to come, but they, the, the, the Lazarus sisters, Mary and Martha, but he doesn't go. He delays it a few days. And then he gets there, and he gets there too late. He's dead. Lazarus is dead. Was Jesus wrong? It did end in death, didn't it? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Both girls said that. Whoops. Should have come earlier. I should have done something about this. It ended in death. Or did it? No, it didn't. Nor will your troubles as a believer in Jesus Christ ever end in death. It did not end in death. But as Jesus, just as Jesus said, it ended in resurrection. Now that was temporal in this world. But that's the hope of every believer. That our suffering will go toward death and pass through death, but it will end in resurrection, in the new heaven and the new earth. Can anybody say amen to that? Even as God in his sovereignty allows suffering for his mysterious purposes, I can't explain it to you. Oh, I see many examples of how even in this life we see his grace, but his eternal goodness ultimately rescues us from death through the provision of Jesus Christ, that all who believe in him will not perish. It doesn't say we won't go through death. It says we won't eternally perish, but have eternal life. And then we can join David in an earlier psalm, the 27th psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then he gives a litany of reasons to be afraid. If you're not trusting in God. But then he closed with this. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, give us strong faith to wait on you and to trust in you. And help us to know how to respond to the suffering of others, to know when to embrace, when to be quiet. But, oh God, help us build the foundation of reservoir within us, within our hearts, for the things that will surely come as we embrace your goodness and trust in you through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.